Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there, Crazy Diamonds. Welcome to another episode of Cycling in Alignment. In this episode, I have a discussion about bike fitting with Neil Stenbury. Neil's an Aussie, and he's also a Steve Hogg certified bike fitter from the Gold Coast of Australia, whatever that means. I think it's a beach made out of gold. Neil and I get into a great discussion about many aspects of bike fitting in our conversation. It's pretty long. And we definitely bounce around the topic of asymmetry. I'm sure you'll enjoy our topic if you have any interest in bike fitting or if you are an amateur bike fit tinkerer, as most cyclists tend to be. You can also check out more of Neil's information on YouTube. He doesn't have his own channel, but he's been featured on several videos from Cam Nichols and also from Road Cycling Academy or RCA. But if you just go to YouTube and search Neil Stanbury, that's Neil N-E-I-L-L with two L's, Stanbury, B-U-R-Y, you'll find him quite easily. You can just search Neil Stanbury Bike Fit and you'll get him. He's got a lot of good advice on cleat position and crank length and several other topics. So without further ado, please enjoy this discussion. And as always, thanks for listening to the pod pedal consciously. How's the weather over there? You guys a bit cold? Um, no. Actually, uh, it's proper summer, but it's been really crazy wet and rainy here. Um, probably one of the wettest springs and summers we've ever had. And normally by July, Colorado's already started to get a bit brown in the like in the fields and stuff. And that's not happening at all here. It's really, yeah, very bizarre. It's quite green, <laughs> like freakishly green. So I just read an article this morning on the times about how, uh, all these climatologists are freaking out because it's been one of the hottest 
um, six months, or I think it was the last 12 months ever recorded since we started recording temperature by a significant margin. And uh, there's record highs being set all over the world, which is not what's happening here, but I think it's just a function of weather changing, you know? Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't sound amazing. Yeah, we've had, um, you know, a pretty tough couple of years with wildfires and all sorts of stuff here. And it's yeah. um, it's been, here we go, I've got the camera working. It's been a bit of a nicer uh, winter so far here. I can't complain. A um, little bit chilly, but um, nothing extreme in terms of weather. But, yeah, last year was pretty, last year and the year before, we had everything from floods to wildfires. Uh, yeah. yeah. All sorts of stuff. Wow. All right, here we go. Let's see if that's going to work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Content. There we go. Hey, you got me. All right. Ah, there we go. Cool. Perfect. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> Lit literally in my garage in front of the car. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, take this off. I'm getting warm. Get yes, it's, a, uh, it's the middle of winter here on the Sunshine Coast, mate, and it's a balmy, I don't know, 12 degrees celsius which is nothing <laughs> it's yeah. nothing yeah <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, about as cold as it ever gets here <laughs> yeah that's frigid for you guys huh <laughs> and you'll you'll be happy to see these here right? uh, way far yeah nice. yeah nice fantastic love it i've converted a few of the locals here onto these uh -huh. and um yeah, everyone, everyone I know who's using one is is loving it at the moment. So yeah, well, well, well done to those guys on a great product. Great, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I think they're an excellent product. Although I will say, um, recently I found more and more handlebars that are coming out that do have at least a little bit of back sweep to them. Uh, yes, you know, Vision or FSA aside, <clears throat> who have the backwards. 5g bars which just make me want to hurl myself <laughs> in front of a bus yeah. those aside um other like cervello has a bar with a little bit of back sweep um zip has some and then just the other day i was looking at shimano and they have a plt carbon handlebar that looks quite nice and ergonomic it's got a little bit of back sweep and even a little bit of up sweep and it yes. has this kind of almost ergon like kind of cup that comes for the palm when you're on the outside of the tops Yes, the market Which, is listening, hey? <laughs> I hope so. It seems like they might be. The new Canyon integrated cockpit has got a bit of a sweep to it as well, I've seen. Um, so, yeah, yeah, people might be actually thinking about it a little bit. I don't know how, yeah. how sort of um, all-encompassing the, the patents are on, on this bar behind me, but uh, it'd be interesting to see if any of them sort of come close to nudging the, you know, the, the patent yeah. uh, issues. <laughs> well, when that when i was working with rick sutton on that project for the wave for the rr bar which is the one you have there there was another company is was i don't know some other company in europe who kind of claimed that they had that design first and it was it was unclear to me who got there first but but coefficient definitely has the patent on it mm. uh, i don't know what i think it's seven years of standard patent in the u.s i'm not sure i don't i don't know very little about patent law but yeah, um, I think those guys challenged the wave and uh, the wave bar coefficient in court somewhere, and I think they got crushed, is my understanding. But I don't totally know, to be honest. So that's a bit of hearsay. I'll just throw it out there in the pot anyway. 
<laughs> there was a there was a local a bloke here in Australia who had something kind of similar a few years ago, which I quite liked. But it, the the bar was um it had an awkwardly large kind of uh, top section to it, and it was only available in two sizes. But it had a similar kind of up and back, but it was missing a lot of the other features that I love about this particular bar, the little scalloped sections and the, the flat top yep. and everything. Um, this one this one just seems like a great evolution of, of all of those things combined, which, um, yeah, has come together to, to make it my favourite bar I've ever yep. seen. But, um, yeah, great design. Yeah. And I see you've got your SMP on there. Well done. Mate, yeah, the, the bin chicken saddle, as we, we call it here. <laughs> <laughs> the saddle. Yeah. Is that a yeah. blaster? I can't quite tell. It is a blaster. It is. Yeah. yeah. I'm, um, I'm, it's the only one that comes close for me. I've, I can ride the Nimber as well. Um, mm -hmm. but the, the blaster is, is just the best. Yeah. I'm super, super, super narrow in this, in the, in the issue pubic ramo, like 90 millimeters, which is just, you know, yep. unheard of narrow type stuff. So yeah, I'm, I was hoping they'd make one even narrower than that, but uh, I've, I've tried the former and I, I can't quite get along with it, but um, so far that one's doing pretty well. Have you tried the new F20 or F30, confusingly, F20 <laughs> CSI or F30? Like I, I love S&P, they make great products, like super high quality. No one else makes a saddle like them on the market, but their names are hopeless, like the Bullhorn. <laughs> I have to tell people all the time. I swear it's not a Star Trek movie. It's a, it's the name of a saddle. It's the model. Just go with it. And yes, they named a saddle the Blaster. Like really? But have you tried the F20 or F30 CSI or SI? I've sat on them, but I've never used them in anger. And and when I sat on them, I thought, oh, this is actually surprisingly surprisingly good. I really didn't think it would be very good from looking at it. Um, but uh, I've, I've got to order one and actually stick it on the bike for a while. I, I try and do that with every saddle that I keep in my fitting studio, just so that I've, I've ridden every single saddle that's there for at least a couple of rides. If it just doesn't agree with me at all, I'll, I'll still keep a stock of it because I know that there's going to be someone out there that, that loves it. Um, but I like to have a fair bit of personal use, if you like, just so that I can advise people on what it feels like and who it suits and that sort of stuff. I haven't used those new ones yet. Um, I, I think potentially in my new stock order from the, the local distributor here in Australia, I might grab one or two. Um, what, what's your opinion on, on those? Do you think they're good, bad, ugly? or? Uh, I, I, well, I'll say I do exactly the same thing. I try to sit on most of the saddles to understand them. And you know, I have customers all the time come in and ask me, you know, what saddle should I ride? I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, all we can do is start to throw saddles under you, and then we can start to get your feedback. I can coach you through what you're feeling to help us discern which direction to go in. Do we need a bigger cutout, smaller cutout, bigger nose, shorter, you know, narrower nose, yes. et cetera, uh, you know, all those things, more curve, less curve. But for me, I thought the same thing initially when they came out with the now I'm get, I'm even getting the names confused. There's a more padded version they came out with first. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's the F20 SI. No, it's the F20 something. C? F20C? I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what SI stands for. It must be non-padded <laughs> Italian, right? So, yeah. I, okay, I think you're right. And I looked at those and went, they've kind of overbuilt the padding a bit. And you can see how it's going to get sort of smashed in around the cutout for most people. So I have a couple of those and I sat on it briefly and was like, mm, I don't really get it. But, it, you know, again, I keep it in the box for for the clients where you're like, OK, you try all the standard approaches and just nothing seems to work. Then you yeah. start throwing different things under them just one after another and like getting more data, more feedback, more feedback. And then you finally hopefully find a winner. 
And for me, when I go through that process, incidentally, the Hail Mary for someone who goes through every saddle I've got, like we're talking, I've got a pile of SMPs, SQ Labs, some specialized, a few flights, uh, not flights, but uh, Cell Italias. Um, Italia. I don't know, I have some other random things in there. I just, and then I have some Jellus as well. I try all those. Oh, yeah. And if they're like, no, 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 no. Then the Hail Mary, especially if someone has just relentless pressure and they were trying to get away from it, is the infinity seat. Mm. And those, if, if people don't know what an infinity seat is like, imagine if you asked a child to draw a picture, an outline picture of a bike saddle, and then you yes. took that drawing and made it into a saddle. That's as close as I can describe it. It's like an outline of a bike seat, right? It's comical. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say I have sat on that for a bit, and they're shockingly comfortable. Um, yeah, even with the little proctology bit at the back that everyone everyone immediately looks and goes, well, that's interesting. But why do they have this thing? There's like a little finger that just looks like it's straight up Main Street, you know? And uh, yeah. I don't have an explanation as to why that is, even though I have done a, a pod with uh, the guy who invented the saddles and super nice guy. But anyway, um, all that aside, I did ride the F. Oh, man, I have to look. I think I chose the wider one, which is the F30 CSI. And I took chucked it on my mountain bike in March, about a week before Sea Otter. And I figured it's a little flatter profile, but it does have these big depressions for the initial tuberosities. And it's got a pretty healthy size cutout. And I rode it for two or three rides, typical like me. Well, actually, I would say atypical me. I just literally put it on there and did it by feel. And rode for a couple of rides and thought, this is really quite comfortable. I'm pretty impressed with how comfortable this is. I have no problems with it. And I think I did one four-hour ride on it. No problem. So I said, okay, I'll race it. So I raced it at Sea Otter. Uh, the race went fine. Did my race, blah, blah, blah. You know, passed all the people and, you know, went through the mud and got dropped and dropped other people and all, all the usual race stuff. And then... Yeah. The next day, I had a bit of pain, like probably right around the perineum, like like a little bit of sharp pain, like the edges of the cutout were just digging into me just a little bit, um, kind of like some people report on the Forma. But for me, I think I have a more current, really the difference between the Forma line and the composite line for me comes down to whether people probably, I'm guessing, have more curve to their ischium, more rocking chair shape, or a little more straight you know, underlying, they don't have much of a curve underneath. They're a little straighter. So um, that's one of the differences that can can cleave people to one path or the other. And I think I'm more curved. So I'm guessing that I just had a little too much pressure on the the sides where the cutouts hit sort of centrally on either side of the, like the lateral aspects of the perineum, I guess you'd say. And um, so I was like, mm, I don't know. And then, but that bike kind of looked like uh, the Mach 5 at the end of Speed Racer after that race, like the bottom bracket was smoked, uh, the rear hub bearings were smoked, like everything hard fell apart. It barely held together for the race, to be honest, even though I did a bunch of work on it. And now it needs, it's pain in the garage looking at me with a sad face. And since then, Cannondale has sent me a scalpel. So now my energy has gone into getting that bike up and running, which is great. Yeah. Um, new bike problems, N plus one, right? Garage yeah. space. Sounds, mate, that sounds terrible. They're giving it's, you a free buy. I, well, they gave me a, a new bike for Unbound, which I went and raced. And then you saw all the mud horror stories, and I managed to destroy the bottom bracket and rear hub in one race. And that, and I got really lucky compared to a lot of people. A um, little bit of frame damage, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So, yeah, mate, you're, you're moving up in the world. There's people throwing free bikes and stuff at you. That hasn't happened to me yet. You put in a good word with Cannondale for me for one of those uh, Lab I'll, 71s, mate. I'll do it. I'll do it. Oh, yeah. you missed a yeah. chance. Uh, 
Team EF Coaching, we're running our promo this month. If you enter the Tour de Foundations for 20 bucks, one of the prizes you win if you complete the challenge is potentially a Lab 71 Cannondale. What's, what's the challenge, mate? I'm good at challenges. <laughs> I think for that, so there's four, there are four sponsors and they each work with one stage. And I believe for the Lab 71, if I remember correctly, it's the TT stage was coming up. So maybe there's still time to... Uh, Go around out there and put your 20 bucks in the pot. And between you and me and no one else who's listening to this who definitely won't hear, your odds of winning are pretty good considering it's $20 and it's like a $15,000 bike. Okay. Sign me up. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) If it's one thing I'm always up for, mate, it's it's free stuff. You know, I I don't get a lot of free stuff thrown my way because I'm not kind of tied to any kind of brand or anything and uh, i just use whatever works the best and um i've I've never really never really pursued any of those lines of inquiry in our profession or or at at all and um so yeah free stuff's always welcome mate it doesn't matter how bad it is (laughs) ill-fitting stuff the wrong bike i don't care (laughs) um (laughs) i've been on a lot of teams over the years and sometimes free stuff is like oh 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 all right now what Uh, those those three-year-old expired gels mate boxing (laughs) one good example Um, (laughs) there's certain saddle brands that i would uh, you you could start sending me paychecks and i still probably wouldn't ride it but i won't name those brands at the moment um have you had a chance to try the jello yet while we're on saddles no no not that one that is one that i it is unfamiliar to me um okay. seen some pictures had a, had a little bit of a quick google of it um i don't know what the distribution in australia is like with that one i don't know if i can easily get one but um it's it's on the list so i just emailed the guy after i think it was gary kirk who suggested it maybe i was one of the guys in our network who suggested hey check these out i think it was gary and i went oh that looks kind of interesting okay so and you know like you i'm always trying to have as many options as possible in the studio so that when we have that client that we just can't find the yeah. right solution for, we have more options, more tools in the toolbox potentially to help them out. And um, <clears throat> so I, I emailed uh, Ankel, who's the guy who runs the company and is, I think, one of the prime uh, creative elements of that company as well, from my understanding. And I just asked him, hey, I'm a bike fitter in Colorado. I've got a studio. Here's my resale license. Uh, can I open a business you know, B2B account? He said, yeah, sure, no problem. So he sent me a few models at at uh, dealer cost, and I've tried them out, and I've had great success with them. I think there's one aspect of their design that's actually quite brilliant. So you know the SQ Lab saddles that have the elastomer in the back end, yes, right, um, and they allow a little bit of lateral movement, like just enough, which in some cases I think can be a good thing. Although I'll say that very cautiously because we allow too much, then it can be problematic, right? At least in my experience, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but the the Jellu makes a couple them. I think they'll make any of their shapes with this design in mind, but they have almost like an old Brooks leaf spring design. So the carbon goes flat and then wraps way behind the saddle and wraps around. And you can just push on it and it just springs up and down and it will also move laterally in either direction. Mm. And so when you get on it, it's got this like weird blend because the carbon shell is pretty stiff. But then the whole thing flexes and moves just enough. So it's actually a very different way to relate to the saddle. And after riding, switch Jello and SMP on different bikes for probably the last, I don't know how many months, maybe six months, probably longer. No, 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 longer than that. Because I rode the Jello last year at Steamboat in the 
on the black gravel course, which is 142 miles. And if that doesn't, mm. if that, and I was great the next day, I was fine. So that's mm. not a, a good fit for me. I don't know what it is. Right. And I, I found that it's almost as if the, his concept is that the initial tuberosities always fall on either side of the ridge on the outside of it. You're not, whereas on SNP, I think sometimes depending on the rider, you're sort of like on the forma, certainly you're sort of tracing the two halves with your ischial tuberosities or your ischium, the, the inferior aspect of the ischium are like tracing that line and they either fit right on there or they kind of don't. And if you're out to the side on a form in particular, because of the tumble home, that, that slope, it almost yes. is like you're being cleaved. Right. Mm-hmm. So for bigger guys, they get on a form and they're like, I can't describe what's happening to me, but I feel like I'm being split in half. I've had a few clients like that. Yeah. So the jello is, kind of gives you like the idea is the cutout is just inside of that always. So you don't have pressure directly on the issue of tuberosities or the ischium and on the whole. And what I found is that floating aspect that it's the sensation that I have is almost that the sacrum is very supported and stable. And there's this freedom in the SI joints mm. to just float. Yep. And then you get the suspension on top of that. And it's like, and it's great to have that saddle on your gravel bike. Cause people always walk up to it and they're like, are you serious? They look at it because it's just carbon, just straight carbon. And they're like, how the hell do you ride that? And then I go, watch this. And I go, and you can bend it like Mm. easily eight mils without much pressure. It's quite mobile. Yep. And then they go, oh, huh. Anyway. Doesn't, don't you lose power with that Colby if it's moving too much and flexing? Yeah. Can you ever lose power? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny what you mentioned about the the SI joints being able to rotate because that, it's actually a, like a so you know probably as well as I do from from trying to unscrew really twisted people that when you come across a client with like a torsioned SIJ like where their one ilium is kind of rotated into post what we call posterior nutation or posterior rotation typically it it screws the hip joints so bad and what you what you tend to lose is internal hip rotation so internal rotation of the hip when the when the femur is bent at sort of more than about 45 degrees it's a combination movement of of the hip joint you know the 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 ball and socket actually internally rotating but then the Mm -hmm. si joint which controls the angle of the acetabulum also needs to gap open to to continually clear the, the front of the hip into internal rotation so the two things kind of to give you an idea like as the hip flexes like this and this comes up if if this rotates open you get more internal rotation ability and so the the free movement or the the gapping open or the rotatory component into frontal rotation of the si joint is super super critical for the function of the hip joint and Mm. so i've got you know i've lost count of how many times this has happened where you you look at a person off the bike and they've got they've got 10 degrees of internal rotation on one hip and 45 on the other and i i've got a i've got a little trick i do where i i mobilize their sij into forward rotation for for 30 seconds i stretch the joint out into frontal rotation quite vigorously and suddenly they've got 45 degrees of internal rotation again and so the the free movement of that sij is is hypercritical for the function of the hip and um it and it causes all sorts of you know other flow-on effects but the the free movement of the ball and socket of the hip 
is is really critical. And having a saddle which allows the ilium's to rotate independently with no resistance on on that bottom section where the saddle is actually contacting, yeah. um, it, it, there might be some value in that, like ergonomically, biomechanically, it it might be quite quite a lot of value. Um, SI joints of all the problems like the, the the i guess the biomechanical problems that we come across particularly when dealing with asymmetry on the bike sacroiliac joints in my opinion are the worst if if your sacroiliac joint is stuck on one side the sitting squarely on a bike and evenly extending both legs with good symmetry is next to impossible i, I it just almost never happens and so you know the the free movement of those ilium's if, if some of the <laughs> some of the design of the saddle is stopping them rotating freely. Maybe you're losing something somewhere, you know, even just like if it's on both sides, maybe you're losing a bit of the ability to anteriorly rotate your pelvis mm. because, because as you, as you anteriorly rotate it, you know, you, you need to rotate those SI joints forward and, and extend your lumbar spine. And if the design of the seat is not allowing the iliums to rotate cleanly, maybe you lose a bit of that. So maybe there's an aerodynamic advantage to it as well, aside from the symmetry advantage so yeah i yeah. i'm i'm slowly coming around to the idea that saddles with a fair bit of flex and and bob in them things like a a brooks b17 or a, you know the sq labs 612s which we we're just talking about or the jelly ones which you're talking about you know maybe that's not a bad idea from a performance perspective and as long as the rider's not kind of destabilized by it and they don't bob and bounce at high cadences yeah. unnecessarily or anything like that I'm yep. seeing very, very few downsides to this concept. Mm. Yeah. You know, I haven't found too many clients that have liked the Jellu uh, so far. But it's a it's a bit of a hard sell because they look at it and they go, hmm. And then I explain it to them and they're still like, well, that's interesting. But it still looks like I'm sitting on a plank of wood, you know. Um, and so <laughs> it's – and I've had people sit on them and usually uh, – I haven't had that many people sit on them. But I've probably tried – maybe a dozen at the most. And most of them immediately said, no, no, this is not for me. And it's like, okay. So we have to get the right shape. I mean, it's just like the SMP models. You know, when I test people on SMPs, I normally put them on the bony end of the line first, right? I'll put a forma on my test bike or on their bike and then a composite. And typically that leads to a very binary outcome, you know, immediately or almost immediately they can say, Oh, this one's better. That one's better. Not always, but often. Um, occasionally we get i don't know and then and and that's usually the case when people just their minds are exploding and they can't get their head wrapped around what they're feeling uh or occasionally i i do think that every once in a blue moon you get someone who's got a real asymmetry to the bone shape in their in the inferior aspect of their ischium and maybe one's got a little more pronounced tuberosity or something like that or if they have like a big femoral leg length discrepancy that's actually osseous then an SMP just may not work because it's just too yeah. supportive under those landmarks, right? And they're just going to be grinding one of them into that surface. Is that that? that yeah, that's it. Matches my experience exactly. Yeah, if you've got any yeah. asymmetry to the curvatures of those iliums, an SMP yeah. is probably not a, not going to agree with you. I have I have modified a few of them over the years where we've taken a light two hundred nine and actually removed the cover and ground away a section of the of of the foam on one side and then recovered it because we've yep. we've had we've had one sided saddle sores and all sorts of stuff and we've X rayed their their pelvis and gone oh shit look at that you've got a <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast but oh, yeah. sorry no, no uh, 
<laughs> you know, okay. look at that. You, you've got a big osseous, you know, asymmetry malformation, if you like, on one of the iliac curves. And so we've actually modified the saddle for them to, to allow them to sit squarely, you know. Those... Yeah. um. Mm. Those infinity saddles are, are good for those people as well. If, but like, like you said, you know the the visual the visual of looking at the thing with the you know what I call the finger of God at the rear there that you were talking about before, uh, that that can be a real sticking point because because this yeah. is a this is a you know for a lot of us the, the the thing we love one of the things we love about this sport is the machine, and if we start to hate our machine visually it demotivates us in the sport. <laughs> so the That's ugliness of, yeah, you know, men, yeah. men in particular are like this. We, we tend to be more attracted to the to the thing rather than the, the sport, I would say. You know, we walk into our garage just as the sun's coming up and we're tired. We look at our bike and we go, man, that thing looks awesome. I've got to get on that and ride, you know. And that's part of the motivation, whereas the ladies just, they, they're not, generally speaking, this is broad brush strokes. But generally, they're not as interested in the machine. They love the experience. And so, you know, if the bike is ugly, you're going to sort of demotivate that bloke sometimes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So an infinity saddle, yeah, that can be a bit of a sticking point for some of the guys. Yeah. Okay. I'll agree with you. And then I'll add to that. I think I, I did a pod on this recently where I was reflecting on this because I think cycling is somewhat unique in this aspect. Like, okay, look at most other sports. There are zero aesthetic considerations. I mean, look at American basketball. Like, yep. look at what these guys are wearing. They're wearing tank tops that are made out of nylon, made in China. And sounds like us. They cost 49 cents to make. And then they're wearing basketball shorts. Like, no one thinks basketball shorts look cool, except a 14-year-old kid who doesn't know what else to wear. And Michael Jordan is his idol. So, okay, that's great. Go wear basketball shorts and go shoot hoops. But nobody designed a basketball short to have any aesthetic consideration. It's basically just the cheapest material possible with an elastic waistband and the colors of your team. And it's just like, make it extra oversized so it never gets in your way. And then make it washable because it's going to smell like a gym after three hours of practice and you need to wash it 5 million times. That's it. But it's like, and most sports are like that. I mean, football, basketball, soccer, like they all wear functional clothing and then they have the uniform look is just their team, the team colors and the mascot or whatever they've got. But cycling is, to my knowledge, I mean, maybe you could argue some other sports, possibly skiing like cross country a little bit, Mm. but most, even those people are really wearing functional clothing. Cycling is the sport that the most, for some reason, blends form and function and we have this love affair with our machines. Um, campy components are, you know, they're polished and they're yep. honed. And remember Darius AX components, which were like light years ahead of their time. And before even anyone understood what aerodynamics were, how they had implications in the victory or the outcome of a race. And and then we have all these aero shapes and all these things. And, and cycling is the only sport, I think, where a, an athlete could come to you and you might say, hey, I think you need this style of shoe because it has a better shaped toe box for your toes. You know, I want you to move from that CD to that bond or whatever, to use a random example, uh, with a toe box that's a little more squared off and gives you a little more room, even though bonds aren't quite where they want them to be, but they're better. And and the rider might be like, well, those are ugly. I don't want to wear them. I'm going to stick with the CD. <laughs> and like no basketball player, I don't think, would ever say that. It'd be like, you need to go from Nikes to Asics or I don't know what, some other basketball brand. And they'd be like, Oh, these fit better. They're more comfortable. Done. And there's some mm. cyclists like that. And it's the same conversation around SMPs, right? 
people who are there's a strong undercurrent of dislike for the beak nose and then we get the question why did they put that beak on there as if i've had yes. this conversation with the guys at smp yes. yeah there it is <laughs> and i'm like yeah. aerodynamics obviously i'll just give them a nonsensical answer just to aerodynamics <laughs> <laughs> oh, i haven't heard that one i think i think you're onto something about the uh the aesthetics part of the sport it's it's curious isn't it offhand i can't think of anything else similar um, mm. But, you know, it, it, the, the machines are all individualized and like, you know, you can, any other sport involving a machine, let's like, let's think of rowing, for example, it's kind of, the boats are all kind of the same, yeah. you know, it's a boat. but yeah, this, this allows you, you know, like this thing behind me here, I'm, I'm not really deep into the aesthetics of the thing, but if I've got, if I've got a bike that I dislike the look of, I'll be much less motivated to use it. And, you know, this thing behind me has got a custom paint job and it's got a few individual tweaks and people ask me, hey, what, what the heck is that thing? Haven't seen one of those yeah. before. That's almost yeah. part of the, you know, it, like you said, it's part of the sport, isn't it? It's, it's very curious how that's happened. Yeah. It's, I guess the only explanation I have is simply that it's European culture has such so strongly influenced the sport for so many decades and there's a real sense of traditionalism in, mm. I, I suppose there must be in any sport that's been around as long as cycling has, you know, mm. uh, hundred yeah. plus years, whatever. But Europe, you know, Europe is better at holding on to things than America is because America is a younger country. And we're also just not as I would argue respectful of our elders and our history here in some ways. Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying that's good or bad either way. Like both have their pros and cons. Sometimes you can hold on to history in a way that isn't helpful. <laughs> um, yeah. and you know, as my a coach and as a fitter, I try to adopt the philosophy that I'm not old school and I'm not new school. I'm all school. Meaning I just take the best of whatever it is, regardless of how it's been around 30 seconds or 30 years. I don't really care if it benefits the client, I'll bring it in. If it doesn't, it won't pretty simple. Yes. Uh, I think yeah. that's fair enough too. Yeah, some of the some of the old stuff still works the best, and 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 vice versa. You know, some of the new stuff is rubbish as well. <laughs> I've right. seen plenty of plenty of rubbish right. products come through. Yeah. And okay, on that topic, I gotta say, I was watching the the women's Giro the other day, and Anime Van Vluten. I was watching her pedal, and my jaw hit the floor. Like, <laughs> what? I'm sorry. What the fuck? Like what the actual fuck? Like how, and, and this is such a poignant point for us as fitters, right? Because it's so easy for people to see us as armchair critics and maybe they recognize us as having expertise. Maybe they think we're complete clowns. I don't know. But like, I, I think almost anyone can see that her saddle is in the wrong postal code. <laughs> like it's not even close. And yeah. yet she's winning the Giro. And this is also a problem with sport, right? Because ostensibly we should be looking towards these this level of athlete for to be some example and there are amateurs who watch you know the 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 trend right now it's happening in the pro men's pro peloton's been going on for i don't know maybe four or five years where people are just slamming their saddles forward and then just nuking the bars down to the front hub independent of any modicum of function or you know whatever they're just like you're a ruler and you're hired to be on the front of the peloton for three weeks straight so i can see the logic in some cases but it sets a pretty potentially confusing example to amateur riders who see someone like Animiek riding around in the pink jersey. And she, she's like a ballerina at the bottom of the stroke, you know, <laughs> yeah. knee completely extended and toes like almost all the way yeah. down. And you're like, 
how do you even pedal? Uh, do you, yep. What do you think about that train wreck? <laughs> um, look, four, four-time world champion, mate. That's all you need to say. So, <laughs> I, I mean, all respect, dude. Like, like he, it's a testament to what the human body can tolerate. But yes, it is. Yeah. I, and I also really am I'm quite careful when I talk to my athletes about if I see something like you come in, you see an athlete and their hips are just smoking all over the place or, um, you know, whatever you see, their saddles in the wrong zip code, way too low or way too high, et cetera. I'm sure you've seen it all just like I have pretty much. And, and you go, wow. And I, so I choose my language very carefully because I don't want to catastrophize things. I mean, how many times have you had a client come to you and they've been to a PT and the PT said something to them, like your glutes don't work. You know, and held <laughs> yes. on to that for eight years. Like that's my glutes don't work. And I'm like, yeah. you know, if your glutes didn't work at all, you wouldn't have been able to make it up that staircase. Like <laughs> I, I'm sure they work. Let's talk yeah. about how optimally they function, right? So I'm very careful with my language. And so my point there is if I saw someone come in with a saddle that's super high, I wouldn't be like, Holy crap, you know, you're about to give yourself arthritis of the knee or blow out this or I don't know, because I don't know that. For all I know, they might be the most functionally amazing athlete ever on the face of the earth. And they could ride like that for the next 30 years and never have a problem. Like I don't have a yep. perfect crystal ball. I'm not Nostradamus. But what I will say is, okay, here's what I see. And I show them on my iPad. I'm like, look, here, see this angle and, and see why. And I kind of walk them through the rule. Uh, yeah. Joint angle dictates muscle function, right? Which I prefer to modify slightly. It doesn't really dictate muscle function. I think that's Cal Dietz who made up that rule. I'm not actually sure I'm looking at my bookshelf, but, um, or who came up with that rule. I prefer to modify it and say joint angle indicates muscle function, right? So if somebody's pointing the toe at the bottom of the stroke, we know that they're not really driving through the bottom of hamstring, you know, et cetera, like basic stuff. And so I explain that to him and I say, here's how I think you're pedaling based on the joint angles I see. And that's a lot of, I see a lot of movement in the hips. And if I had to predict what was going to happen, I'd say it's probable that you might have some low back problems or maybe some hip problems in the future or could show up somewhere else. You know, that's always the the mystery is where it shows up. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm talking a lot. Please tell me your thought. <laughs> I've got a couple of, couple of, uh, you know, talking points on that one. Well, um, have you ever noticed through the thousands of people that you've fitted that the correlation between how bad their position is in a general sense, like things just being way, way, way off the correlation between that and how much pain they're in, there's almost no correlation. There's yeah. almost no correlation. So, like, I've got riders. Like, I had a, I had an incident a couple of weeks ago where I had two guys in back to back. One of them was this old German bloke in his 60s who rides Audax regularly, does 600 kilometer, you know, what's that, 400 mile uh, mm-hmm. rides. And the guy had a, a, a massive, yeah, he had a massive um, osteophyte on the front of his left hip that he didn't know about. And his left knee moved across the line of the pedal, I would guess, on about a 30-degree angle. So it, it just kind of came across the line like this. Wow. And it, 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 was, it was one of the worst I've ever seen because his hip wow. just couldn't flex normally. And I said, I watched him ride, and I said to the guy, do you have any left knee pain? And he's like, no, no, I've never had, no, never had knee pain, no. I'm like, wow. do you have any pain anywhere at all? No, no, no discomfort. And then the next rider in was a a, a hyper-functioning 18-year-old NRS rider, which is our national Australian road series here, who's who's a picture of perfection. And his seat was like three mil too high, and and one of his legs was like two mil shorter in the tibia. And he was crippled with knee pain. 
Yep. And I was and, and like I watched him ride for about five minutes before I spotted where the asymmetry was and what was going on. It was so subtle. And you know, so the correlation between the symptoms and and the, the like how wrong their position is, is is really really poor. And so there's a lot of interplay in things going on in the background, like things like um, like connective tissue resistance to inflammation. Now this is this is largely a, a genetically mediated process, which means that you can be born with a set of genes, which means that if if you've got some sort of friction based inflammation going on of like an ITB or a tendon rubbing over a bit of bone where it shouldn't or something some people are just immune to the inflammatory process like or, or close to immune from those mm. friction-based inflammations so they can ride in that horrible position forever and never have a problem and then i've got like people who just just a little bit off for 20 minutes and they're crippled and their knee hurts for a month afterwards you know so <clears throat> that genetic kind of predisposition towards friction-based inflammation which is what we're generally dealing with 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 cycling overuse injuries is highly yeah. variable and it's it's unpredictable so maybe you know maybe anamik is just immune yeah. to friction-based inflammation yeah. and 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 then, then the question is like you know how how can you perform with a seat that's that high <clears throat> and i've got yeah one of the things that you probably know as well as i do is that the main the main predictor, I guess, or the, or the main resistor of cardiovascular output on a bike is the heart and the lungs. The, the legs and the mitochondria and stuff and, and the distribution of the mitochondria and the capillary beds and everything, they tend to be a secondary thing further down the line, in my experience, that kind of blocks the person from performing cardiovascularly. But the yeah. heart and the lungs, you know, that that alveoli density, the oxygen transference, the stroke volume of the heart, you know, all this sort of stuff. If, if you've got the major limitation to your power output cardiovascularly is happening here in your chest, it kind of doesn't matter that much where the legs are in terms of outright power generation. And you see that in some people like, like Anamique, you know, so we would, <clears throat> I would, I would probably, I would imagine that she's probably fiddled with her position a little bit uh, over, over the years and has, has probably found that that's where she performs best. And, and why is that? who knows but maybe she's got bilateral iliac artery endofibrosis that she doesn't know about and so she has to keep her hip angle really really open so the seat's got to be high or something I, uh, and maybe she yeah. just doesn't perform at normal seat heights because of that maybe she's got like neurological hamstring problems so she can't engage them well but i would imagine she's fiddled with it but it looks it looks terrible and you think why isn't she losing a heap of power Generally speaking, my experience that, you know, that's because the, the main limitation is is cardiovascular, you know, respiratory and cardiac um, function, which is mainly what what limits, you know, when we feel that that acidosis kind of burn, that lactate burn in our legs, we, we commonly say to ourselves, oh, that's that's my legs burning up. And what that yep. really is, is, is a lack of nutrient and oxygen and ATP and whatever getting to the muscle, which in turn, you know, it's a flow chart, you go high enough up that flow chart. You get to the yeah. heart and the lungs as as yeah. the main limiting factor. So we yeah. feel it in our legs, but it's it's not really something that has its roots in our legs most of the time. So yeah, it, it's bizarre watching her ride though. I, every time I see it, I think, God, man, is that right? Is is that? Right. Yeah, she's won four more world titles than I have, Colby. So maybe I'm wrong. Uh, <laughs> I think your explanation is reasonable. Um, it makes me think a lot about different disciplines though and different and the archetype of racing right so we have to consider i think that 
when we're thinking about the types of races Annie X is going to win, we're talking about the women's zero. And what is that? That's a series of uh, three or four hour road races with a bunch of climbs, right? So when we get, and it's, and he, she specializes in stage races or long one day road races that are, you know, I don't remember how long women's world was uh, any of the years that she's won it. I think they're around 150 K for women's road worlds. Right. So, okay. So we're talking about probably five hours worth of bike racing plus or minus depending on the course. So it's long enough to really wear the sport can become dominated by, like you said, the cardiovascular system, the aerobic system. And I think fundamentally in the archetype of road cycling, that tends to be true. And in other aspects, it does also. However, if we stuck Enemyek in a World Cup mountain bike race, right, then we might see a different picture because she has to distribute. If you look at the aerobic and cardiovascular load, like she might have a similar heart rate on a long climb, a half hour long climb in the Dolomites or whatever as she would during uh, the hardest half an hour of a cross-country race. But then we look at her power profile and the torque profile, and we see a very different picture, right? Mm -hmm. During mountain biking, she would have to have more stochastic power, probably much higher torque values and lower cadence values. And that's going to do a lot of things. It's going to put more load away from the aerobic system. While the heart rate's the same, it's going to tax the muscular system because of the accelerations and decelerations and also because the higher torque. And it's also going to exacerbate the dead spots in her pedal stroke. So on the road, you know, I I think this is also one of the problems of cycling is that road bikes, modern road bikes are so amazingly efficient at converting fundamentally what is metabolic energy into mechanical energy. Like they're just amazingly efficient machines. The problem with cycling is you can literally just be ax chopping the pedals to death and still go pretty fast. Like you can have a, a guy or a gal show up to a local 20K time trial with a $14,000 bike and they can just be murdering the pedals. I mean, atrocious technique, you know, hips everywhere and wrestling the bike and all this. And, but they still go 27 miles an hour. And then the smoothest, fastest rider maybe goes 29. Yeah. And so you don't see, whereas you put someone with that delta between their techniques in a swimming pool and the time difference will probably be 30% or something totally obnoxious or the person with bad enough technique will just drown, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you got a runner with that bad a technique and they'll probably get injured really quickly, which is why there's so many injuries running and less cycling because cycling is yeah. more forgiving to those biomechanical crimes, we'll say, or um, inefficiencies. Cross-country skiing, like skate skiing, you're really bad. You're just going to fall over repeatedly because it's so balance oriented. You know, you're on one leg, like skating and driving. So if you don't have core stability and some semblance of ability to stack over the ankle and the calcaneus and, you know, drive from the core and all this, you're just going to be like falling everywhere, which is exactly how I was when I was 17 years old, like a Muppet on skis. So cycling, um, road cycling in particular, I would say maybe pushes us more at that aerobic cardiovascular um, priority, that totem pole of priorities. However, in my experience, it can still be quite limited. If somebody's hamstring cramps, all of a sudden that aerobic ability doesn't, and it doesn't matter if you have a 96 VO2, if the left That's hamstring right. is on fire or your right lower back is on fire. Cause you're, you know, dropping a hip like crazy, everything stops and it all goes, whoop, and then that's the limiting factor, right? And you're, you're stuck at 200 Watts or whatever. So, right. yeah. uh, and then the other aspect I'll add to that is I think there's a, definitely a function of, for me, I battled this a lot during my career, my professional racing career where I clearly felt below about 80 RPM, which is relatively high. I, my theory was, I never proved this and I never got a moxie to, to really demonstrate it, but I think I was 
quite susceptible to suffering from um, intramuscular ischemia during high torque moments. So I had to build up enough mechanical resistance in my muscles, the fibers and the capillary beds or, or that venous and arterial flow had to be durable enough to get blood in and out of the muscles, or there had to be some other adaptation, probably, I don't know, maybe I, you know, it was like, as soon as my kids went below 80, relative to my peer group, I was like losing ground. And then we get above 80 and I'm like catching up. And then above 90, I'm like on par yep. better. And above 100, I'm just dropping people. That's and, funny. That's exactly what I'm like as well. Exactly really? what I'm like. Yeah, my right. my my efficiency drops off a cliff if I hit sort of, it's about 80, 85 cadence mm-hmm. for me. And, yep. you know, yeah, it's I've got amazing leg speed. Like I can tick along at 100, 110, 115 cadence yep. doing a, a zone two effort, no worries. And part of that is that I'm running short cranks um 165s as well but yeah i'm very much like that and i think i think you're onto something with the speed of the contractile effort in the muscle bed because as it as it as the the muscle contracts the the, there's no circulation going on as it contracts because there's too too much mechanical resistance to the circulation and then as it Mm -hmm. lets go the, the blood will obviously pump back through. And I would imagine that there is a, a large amount of genetic variation in people as as to what, like how much, uh, what's the word, like how rapidly you can complete that action and still have good circulation through and, and, and vice versa, how slowly you can complete that action and still have good circulation through. And yeah, yeah. I'm exactly like that. And I think we probably have a fairly similar build. I'm like 63 kilos on a good day and, and five, uh, what am I? Five foot nine, five foot 10 and really, really hyper lean. And you're, you're probably around that kind of stuff We're as well, aren't you? Almost identical. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to race about 62, 63 kilos. Now I put on a little bit of upper body mass. I'm more like 65, 66, but yep. yeah, same Let like 76 go, centimeters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let myself go. Yeah. 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 There's something in that. I, I think that's just one of the many genetic variations and, um, you know, in people, I see people grinding along at 60 RPM and that's, and that's their kind of preferred cadence and they do well with that, you know, and it, t- mm-hmm. it tends to be those stockier, shorter, more kind of powerfully built guys and then us we tend to go the other way you don't see many like you know super lean ectomorph types grinding it out at 60 rpm yeah mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> yeah i don't know what to make of of, of vanamika uh, I, I i assume she's fiddled with her her bike position quite a lot and there's a solid reason why it's like that but yeah it um yeah. It, it makes you cringe every time you see it but if she's performing and and that's how she performs best who are we to say she's wrong, mate? You know, <laughs> agreed. Totally agreed. Yeah, I'm not here to say <laughs> she's doing anything wrong. She's winning races all over the place, so that's great. Yeah. That said, if she were in my fitting studio, I would be I would be tempted to have an honest conversation with her. And look, just to pull up a historic example, I worked with Team Garmin Sharp in 2014, and I was on their sports science program then. But I got roped into doing a bit of bike fitting, of course. And uh, I went in there with Todd Carver, who's one of the main guys at Retool. And Rachel was a sponsor of the team at the time. And I know Todd for a long time. And, and so we went in there and he said, Hey, just come tell me what you think. And here's Ryder Hezjedal, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And Ryder gets on the bike and it was the same situation. I saw him pedal and I went, my jaw yeah. hit the floor. <laughs> yeah. Went to Todd and looked at him and he just looked at me and smiled because he's seen it before. <laughs> he had been working with the team for like three or four years at that point. And I was like, conference. And I went and talked to him like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. like Ryder, same situation. His saddle was way too high. 
like way too high, actually very similar to, to Anamiek. And I, I was like, what, what is the deal? And he said, I've been trying to get him to lower saddle for years. Now, to be fair, rider, rider's a really interesting rider, uh, rider, bike ride, cyclist, because he's super tall. He's 194 centimeters or something, which is like six, three, I think, uh, like so tall that you could sometimes he kind of slope stooped a little bit. And, you know, you can imagine that if, when you're that tall as a grade schooler, you're probably getting teased. So maybe you have some bioemotional, you know, memory of like not wanting to be the dandelion that sticks up and gets its head cut off. Right. Who knows? I can't yep. speak for his experience as a kid, <laughs> but I can imagine, you know, grade school and middle school kids are brutal. Right. Uh, boys and girls. So there's that to consider. So he's kind of swoops, but also he was on the team was sponsored by physique at the time. He was on the Arione, which is my least favorite saddle in the entire universe. It's up there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I can say that. I feel like I can say that honestly because I rode the freaking thing for seven years. I rode at the Olympic Games. So if anyone can <laughs> beat up on it, I can. So anyway, uh, we'd never put one of those on my bike again. I'll leave it at that. But he was on that saddle. And as you know, it's like a fitting dartboard, right? I mean, it's flat as a pancake. So you can literally just be like, saddle offset plus or minus three centimeters, you know. Kind of so, move around. <laughs> the angle is always zero on that because it's dead ass flat. It's a pancake, so there's not yeah. much to do there. And you know, yeah. height doesn't really matter that much either because the saddle's going to move. The rider's going to move forward like six <laughs> centimeters on the saddle at least. So yeah. I can just kind of ballpark it. So let's just throw the dart at the wall, and as long as I hit the wall, we're good to go. So laziest bike fitting saddle ever. And so anyway, he's on that. So he moves around a lot, and he also rotates his pelvis like he's got a huge range of rotation anterior posterior. So that changes, of course, his leg extension and he changes his offset. And he's moving around all over the place. So it's a bit of a moving target. But when he sits kind of in the middle, he's way too high. Mm. Anyway, long story longer. I I just had a really honest conversation with Ryder. I, I sent him an email after the session. I was like, look, man, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell you I think your saddle is too high. I know you won the Giro and you're a badass and you've done all these cool things, but your saddle is too high. And I know you're like starting the season. So don't just if you're going to take my advice lower it in tiny increments, right? And I'm sure you've experienced this. You have a pros in the middle of their season and they've got a little knee niggle or maybe they just want to tune up or maybe they just got a new frame from the team and they can't figure out what's going on or new shoes. And you're like, hmm. And then you see things that need to be changed. It's like, how do we handle this in season so you can give them the small increments protocol? So yep. how, do you do that? What's your what's your protocol in that case? I do, yeah, ex exactly that. Um you know, I've, it's always it's always people contacting you like four weeks out from an enormous race, and then they're doing a big training block, and their knee has started to hurt or something, and they're they're coming in urgently. You know, oh, I've got to see you this week. Oh, my knee, you know, and you look at the bike. Oh, geez, you know, this thing's way off, and that's wrong. And he's got an eight mil shorter leg that he's never known about. And you know, what what do we do here? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky it's a tricky call. You you walk the fine line. I, what I often do with them is I make I put everything where I would have it, make an enormous series of changes in the clinic, and then and then watch them ride. And if there seems to be no psychological 
block, if you like, to the changes. If they yep. go, shit, that, yeah, that feels way better. My, my leg feels way better. My knee's not hurting. The pedal stroke mm. feels much more controlled. Sometimes I just let them, I just let them go. And I say, look, look, you know, do, do two or three zone two rides if you, if you possibly can in the next week. Um, and if you get any, if you get any major sort of cha- like, uh, what's the word, like teething problems, like one hamstring is suddenly under more load than it's ever been under before. And, and it starts cramping or getting painful or anything like that pull the seat back up four mil and and reduce the height of the shim by three and and will creep you back up over time but sometimes i just let him just let him go for it and sometimes i don't and most of the time i find the best predictor of that is actually what they tell you during the session if they go oh i don't i don't know man this feels this feels so weird i, I yeah. if they can't psychologically deal with it they they generally won't physically deal with the rapid changes which is really yeah. curious um some some of them are just like unconcerned they just go oh yeah no it doesn't really feel that different and you've just moved their seat up 15 mil and you've put an enormous leg length shim under and you've changed their q factor or something and they they barely notice, and those are the ones that are going to be just fine. Really fine. But if they, yeah. if yeah, if they're a hyper obsessive OCD, oh, I'm not sure about that one millimeter lower seat you've done there. I don't know about that. You know, it just doesn't feel good. I'm feeling like my glutes aren't engaging as well. You know, if they're if they're telling you stuff like that, you got to go. You got to go slow. And it's I think it's mainly for psychological reasons. <laughs> Yeah, which is you know it's a psychological sport, so that's that's potentially fair enough. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I on many occasions I've had to do exactly what you're describing. Say, okay, here's our finish line. Um, this is where we're going to end up, and I want you to do this slowly over the next four weeks, assuming no, assuming you don't hit any roadblocks along the way as as we as we change this potentially seat height or you know it's a bit harder to do that with with Q factor and stuff like that. But um, seat height yeah. and large leg length shims are, are the two. Yeah, for sure. Or, yeah. yeah you got to some of them are delicate wallflowers mate so did did Ryder end up lowering his seat at all he did and the he funny did. part is i um yeah i gave him this whole thing and this protocol and then heard nothing from him like crickets and then i showed up to a training camp in Girona, i don't know 10 weeks later or something like that and i think it was a pre-giro camp and you know i saw him for the first time and i said hey man how you doing he was like oh i meant to email you i lowered my saddle and i was like you did he's like yeah it feels way better thanks for your email i, really it. I was like great so immediately you know i whip out my phone and i like email todd i'm like you did it and todd was like look man when no one's around just ask the mechanic for a tape and go double check <laughs> sometimes the rider will just not want to change you know I mean, this is the reality of a pro bike rider. And I don't mean to disrespect rider at all in this situation. Like, this is the thing. Like, someone like at rider's level or Animex level, she's probably got people giving her opinions left, right, and center mm-hmm. all over the place. She probably has people coming up to her telling her sales too low, you know, or that it needs to be moved forward or something. You know, she yeah. just get a, you know, a reverse triathlon post or something weird. I mean, who knows <laughs> what people hear? And everybody's an armchair critic. and And that's fine. So I think there are times when people aren't, some people aren't really confrontational. They're not just going to look you in the eye and say, thank you for the advice. No, thank you. They're going to yeah. say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And, th- and they're thinking to themselves, there's no way in hell I'm going to do this. And that's just the way people handle that binary yeah. boundary of, you know, yes, no push pull. Mm. And so Todd's point was go check it. So I took a tape out and I checked it and it was, it was quite a bit lower. If I'm right, it was like 14 miles lower or something. And I was like, all right. 
Right. I feel like I did something there. Now he didn't end up winning the Giro that year, so that was obviously my fault. But <laughs> he p- performed terribly. <laughs> <laughs> <to> low, <see. laughs> no power at all, right? it's obvious so i wanted to ask you on the topic of asymmetry i watched one of your videos with alicia wells oh yeah and and she i believe you found that she had a leg length discrepancy and you put a shim in on one side Mm. and i don't recall how many mils it was it was probably three or five mils or something non-trivial and so on that topic like I've had a lot of riders who come to me and, you know, maybe they've got niggles going on. Maybe they don't. And you look at them in standing and the pelvis is a bit crooked and then you double check and you think, okay, yeah, if you're lucky, it's a tibial leg length discrepancy, but it's usually not. It's usually femoral, which is harder to kind of iron out, right? Because the femurs, you know, it's kind of going between close to vertical and close to horizontal. So you put one-to-one under there and it just screws things up and changes the leverage point. And, and so Alicia looked like she was pretty young to me. I don't know. She might've been 21 or something just based on the video. Uh, but, and so younger riders tend to be a little more resilient and have springier tissue and better healing capacity than, uh, old guys like me. But what, how do you handle someone who's recently, they've been on the bike and they've got hip pain or back pain or some sort of niggle or something that come to you to find out. And then you look at them and you say, have you ever been told you have a leg length discrepancy before? And they're like, no, no idea. Now, the person's already been walking on the surface of the earth for 20 or 30 years or 50 years if they're a mammal, right, as we call them. That's middle-aged men in legra. Yeah, that's me. And they don't know how to leg discrepancy. So clearly their body is adapted to having one leg longer and one leg shorter. But now they're on this machine, which has unusual symmetry demands of the body and it's repetitive and the body's locked into certain ranges of motion. And curiously, other ranges, other joint movements are actually more free than they would be in many other sports. So cycling just screws with the nervous system on many levels. So my little conundrum in my head, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is like, well, okay, if the person's having pain on the bike only, and they've never had a pain in their life other than that, then it stands to reason that we could probably shim them on the bike and they might be okay. They might slowly adapt. However, I'd be surprised if that actually is a real case because most of the time you ask them that initially and they're like, yeah, I only get pain on the bike when I ride it, you know, when I climb. Okay, what is it? It's lower back pain. What's the onset? You know, what's the intensity? What's the sensation like? You ask them all those questions. Make sure it's not a disc problem, right? As best you can. And if it, you think it might be, maybe you refer them out, et cetera. But then you'd start drilling in a bit. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, now that you mention it, um, I climbed like three flights of stairs the other day and my back hurt. And I carried this box of, you know, books around the other day and my back hurt. And now you mention it, whenever I wear my backpack, my back hurts. And it's like, okay, so now we have a situation where we're going to correct you on the bike, but we're not going to correct your walking shoes. Mm. And it's one thing to tell someone they need a three mil shim in their cycling shoes because they just put their cycling shoe on and they go ride. But it's another to tell them, you know, the 24 pairs of shoes that you own, including three pairs of flip flops, you now need to put a three mil heel shim in all of them. Or you yes. need to throw most of them out and just wear two pair that you take to a podiatrist and have them install a shim, blah, 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 blah. So how do you. How do I marry those things up? Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, so Alicia, Alicia's like, ah, uh, she'd be five foot five five foot six she's she's not tall 
And she's got a, a combined, I think it was a combined femoral and tibial discrepancy of around eight or nine millimeters. So it's pretty, it's pretty decent. Um, and the shim we used was seven millimeters. And we found the best combination for her was to just use a seven mil shim. And I think nothing else. I don't think we staggered the cleat or anything like that. And it just, yep. you know, her symmetry went from t- quite, like she was a very high level compensator on the bike. So it wasn't amazingly visible. She was one of those um, beautiful toe pointers. So she'd, she'd point the toe of the shorter leg really effectively to, to iron out a lot of the discrepancy. So it didn't make its way into her pelvis a lot. Um, yeah. But she, she looked beautiful with a seven millimeter shim basically. Now, the, what I tell these people is that there's there's value in symmetry, even if it's not immediate value. So there's there's value in symmetry for two reasons. One of them is your sport require. You know, this sport requires huge degrees of functional and structural symmetry, and life is a lot easier if your legs are the same length on a bike. You're going to run into less kind of slow onset muscle tension problems and whatever and this and that. Even if it's not just concrete pain, you're going to run into less problems down the track if you're more symmetrical in terms of your function on the bike uh, yep. than also off the bike. So for, for Alicia, you know, we would – anything of that magnitude, I always get them to use, to use um, for example, heel lifts in their walking shoes and that kind of stuff. If it's two or three or four millimetres and they're kind of a weekend rider and they're not doing massive kilometres – we correct it on the bike. We say, look, you know, let's see how you go long term. Um, and if you never have any other major problems with it, don't worry, you know. But if, if it's someone like her who might be doing five, six hundred kilometer weeks racing at a very high, like a continental level, for example, um, there's value in symmetry. There seems to be, I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but when you improve someone's symmetry on the bike enormously, really suddenly, like they come in for a bike fit and you go, oh my God, your, your leg's 12 mil shorter than the other one and you're dropping your hip and you're sitting twisted and one knee's going over there and the other one's going over here. When you suddenly click your fingers and fix that in the, in the, in the fitting process, they get this enormous sudden increase in their endurance on the bike. And this it's usually not a lot of power gain if they see power gain it's often in their 20 minute effort but they're one and three and five their vo2 efforts kind of the same because that works on different energy systems but the longer the effort goes for the more symmetry based neurological efficiency becomes valuable the way that i like to think of this is I, i imagine that it takes energy to compensate and that energy is basically neurochemical energy it's 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 your your cerebellum a lot of the time or your central pattern generator in your lower back having to constantly alter the firing sequence of of your main musculature in your leg to keep you away from injury or to or to make it as symmetrical as it can so when we remove the need to compensate they get a large increase in neurological efficiency and that that nervous system energy that's being sucked out of them by by forcing them to compensate around this asymmetry it's quite energy sapping it it demands a fair bit of metabolic load which could otherwise be just calories stored for later use in the ride so i find people tend to get this this large improvement in their in their endurance which comes on really rapidly now that 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 has benefits just for performance which is great but then then with what what you really want to know and what what is most important to all of us really is our our resistance to injury and that is very hard to delineate and quantify across large time scales because you might fix their symmetry issue now on the bike and it might prevent 
a chronic ITB glute SIJ pattern that's five years down the track. It's not right. there now, but right. if she keeps riding for another three, five years or whatever, maybe she'll be a wreck and she won't be able to train well. So there's there's value in symmetry. And and the more you're, the higher the level you're performing at, the more watts you're putting down and the more hours that you're doing it every week, the higher the value for symmetry tends to be. So, yeah, I, I have that conversation with them when there's when there's large asymmetries, which we really, really don't want to invade their daily life. Something like a big leg length discrepancy or a, a, a twisted SIJ or something like that. Those things are kind of like non-negotiable. You've you got to have that stuff kind of ironed out otherwise one day they're going to have a problem from it and you know it, it's very hard to quantify this stuff because you, you don't have a control group when you when you do this it's just the one client everyone's an individual and so yeah. it's very very hard to measure how much of a positive benefit you're having for over the next 30 years of their life um, but there is some benefit in in symmetry for sure and off bike you know the number of people anecdotally i can tell you the number of people that I've met who've had mysterious multi-level one-sided disc herniations from, you know, gardening or lifting heavy stuff, and it turns out they've got a, a 10 millimeter shorter leg, which is therefore loading the discs asymmetrically. So they, they herniate out on, on the one side all the time, whether it's the narrow side or the, 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 the gapped open side. But yep. it, the point being that it, it creates asymmetrical load on the spinal segments, which then leads to potentially asymmetrical injuries, you know. So I've seen that so many times where the person is going, oh, yeah, I, I busted my elbow. Right. And I go, well, that's mysterious that it was all on the same side. Let, sorry, let's have a look at you. Neil, you just you know. dropped out for like five seconds there. Will you, sorry, will you repeat that last sentence? Oh, sorry. Yeah. The number of times I've met people with asymmetrical, like one-sided multi-level disc injuries that have happened across decades of their life. And it's, and it's, it's due to a leg length discrepancy, which is loading the two sides of the disc differently. Yeah. Um, it, I've lost count of it. You know, so it happens so often. So I, I think there's some value in decent symmetry generally, just from a loading perspective off the bike, mm. you know, but um, that no one's perfect. Like I've got a slight rotoscoliosis in my lower back and one of my hips is a bit iffy. I've got a, a tiny cam lesion on one side and stuff. You know, no one needs to be perfect. But as long as I'm pain-free day-to-day, I'm relatively symmetrical and I can ride my bike with no symmetry-based issues, that's yeah. usually good enough, you know. But when you're as yeah. wonky as 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 Alicia, she's she was really asymmetrical, uh, and she was a great case study. Actually, I had I had no idea what was you know who was coming in that day. We were, we were going to do some filming, and um, and Craig, her her other half, who's um, the sprinter on the same team. He said, "Oh, I think you'll, I think you'll find some stuff in Alicia." And I said, "Oh, cool. You know, maybe it'll be something subtle or something interesting." And I watched yeah. her from behind and went. Oh, this is going to be great. This is this yeah. is brilliant. I had no idea, and it's it's rare that you see someone that asymmetrical. And you know, she 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 only had one problem, which was a minor. Uh, she had tibialis anterior pain on one yep. side. It was like yeah. like a two out of ten when it was at its worst. Like it was it was nothing, you know. And it was just from mm -hmm. just from pointing her toe down. But from but like perhaps we, yeah, perhaps we headed off 
50 other problems which might have happened in her late 20s. We, we just don't know. But right. like I, I, I keep saying to people, you know, there there is some value in symmetry. And um, I think you'd, you'd be remiss if you're doing what we do and you don't resolve or make an attempt to resolve symmetry-based problems. You know, you're doing – I think you're doing a quarter of a bike fit if you don't deal with symmetry. And yeah. – um, you know, the the easy stuff is putting their seat in the right place and putting the cleats in the right spot and where the bar goes. That's yeah, I can do that stuff in 20, 30 minutes if I've got a perfectly symmetrical person in front of me. But I would suggest 90% of my time during a fit is spent ironing out asymmetry because every overuse problem you ever have on a bike pretty much is always one-sided or it's or it's dramatically worse on one side you know it's it, it, it almost never symmetrical aches and pains so symmetry is kind of our whole job i i think at, at this the level that you and i are operating with this profession you know we're not just guys in a bike shop sort of setting up new bikes that people have just bought and trying to get them kind of roughly right where people are paying yeah. us for a you know, a, a very high level service. If we're not dealing with a symmetry to the nth degree, I think I think we're probably missing, you know, we're missing a key part of our profession there for sure. I, I think it's the main part of the profession. I, I almost call myself a, a, a symmetry-based cycling biomechanist now. <laughs> it's just kind of yeah. all I do is asymmetry. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Uh, I think... It, a lot of times, I'm. I don't know if you're like I am. I get a lot of the, it's a little bit of the land of misfit toys. Like people who have been through three or four or five bike fits, and they come to me and they're like, "Yeah, nothing really seems to work, and my lower back still hurts, or my knee still hurts, and my shoulder, you know, my under my shoulder blade hurts." Right? It's like, okay, let's take a look. At what's going on? Ah, you're standing like this. You're walking like this. Yeah. And you've got your active straight leg raises. You know. 30 degrees shorter on one side. Okay. We've got some big or external internal rotation, big discrepancies. And when I see those discrepancies in, in mobility, particularly just as a starting point, I always reference Kit Laughlin's uh, lecture on, or, or point that I learned from him years ago, which is simply that, you know, in grade school, I think this is the same in Australia, but in the U S you know, we're brainwashed a lot of, a lot of messages in grade school. Uh, one of them is that you get vitamin D from milk, Another is that red meat will kill you because you'll get a heart attack. And then the, oh, another yeah. one is that you stretch to prevent injury. And the conclusion <laughs> that we draw on our heads is if you stretch a lot, you won't get injured. But, you know, <laughs> Kit points out that if you put a thousand people through a 12 point flexibility or mobility screen and you get a bell curve and on one end, you've got Gumby and on the other end, you have house brick, as he puts it, right? The Australian <laughs> term for an inflexible person. <laughs> um, right. Uh, you would assume that Gumby would have no lower injury rates and housebreak would have much higher injury rates, but then you overlay, you know, the rate of injury on top of that bell curve and there's no correlation. What you see in his perspective is actually that the biggest predictor of injury is large asymmetries in mobility mm -hmm. or flexibility, either left to right or front to back. Yes. So, yeah, and that's that would be that part. Experience. That last yeah. part is my own interpretation, right? Like, if somebody's got exceptional flexions, forward flexion of the spine, but zip all for for uh, extension, what well, you're gonna have a yeah. problem, <laughs> yeah. right? You're gonna have a problem. Or you can yeah, turn. Was it? A... <laughs> you know, same thing, right? Yeah. There was an enormous um, 
multi-year research study done on the AFL, the Australian Football League, which is a sport we have here. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's it's a mental sport. There's this enormous field, which is like the size of like five regular football fields. And these guys run the equivalent of like a marathon across this like, uh, you know, two hour game. And the, 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 the amount of distance they cover at massive speed is just is off the charts. And it's you know, it's a contact sport. They're tackling. There's no there's no bloody, uh, you know, there's there's no padding or anything. Pads, and they, yeah, they, they did this this research across many years with these guys and they were trying to figure out, like, how do we reduce the rate of like hamstring injuries, for example? And they found like there was no correlation. It didn't make a difference if they stretched, if they did like out of season mobility work, nothing. None of that made any difference. The main, the biggest predictor that they found with hamstring tears, I, I think, was the hardness of the ground they were running on. So they mm-hmm. they did like like hardness testing of the soil of each one of the pitches that they played on. If if it was rock hard and dry, right. they were more likely to get injured because of the reaction forces coming up through the ground, like more shock loading basically. But yep. there was no correlation with stretching or stuff, you know, nothing like that. So yeah, that that kind of idea is is been disproven many many times. But it's um it's pervasive, isn't it, mate? It's like that food pyramid you guys have got in the US that. Uh, Ansel Keys did up, you know, it's pervasive um, yeah. In, yeah. In, in, in that kind of uh, context, you know, every, everyone just kind of has it stuck in their mind since the 1970s or whatever, and they can't get it out of their mind. Yeah, it's yeah. the same kind of yeah. thing. Well, but I would, to, I would say, um, you're, I would say not you're to right. Split, not to bring up a holy cow, but it's kind of like the discussion between germ theory and terrain theory, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, germ theory is. still still pervades, and yet yeah. Yeah. the person who came up with it said before he died, I can't remember his name at the moment, someone famous. Anyway, sorry. Yep. Yeah, it's exactly like that. You know, old habits die hard, mate, and those kind yeah. of um, those pervasive uh, theories uh, they they're with you for a long time in our society, and getting rid of them is real tough, real tough. Yeah. yeah. I saw the uh, FDA over there just released their new uh, their new food pyramid, and and Lucky Charms were ahead of uh, steak on the uh, okay. on the recommended. Yeah, they they were more healthy Lucky Charms than than red steak on the on the. Uh, and that's mate, it's two thousand and twenty three, <laughs> and Lucky Charms are apparently God. healthier than okay, red so- steak. Let's just yes. let's just go ahead and address that, since clearly we're gonna um, <laughs> make sure that everyone knows that this food pyramid is. How do you feel about that? Do you think Lucky Charms should be ranked ahead of steak? Oh, definitely, Lucky Charms in their natural environment. They, I think, they grow on a wild tree in the Appalachian Mountains, and they're just they're the purest form of nutrition, mate, for sure. You have to get them during season, in season only, though. You know, you yeah. Seasonally, Lucky Charms. That's not they lose their nutrient density when you leave them in a freezer and uh, spray them with chemicals. Yeah, they do. Yeah, you don't want any of that steak stuff. It's got all this nasty like red stuff in it. That it's obviously just food coloring. It's not. You know, it can't be amino acids or chains or anything good for you. It can't be protein. It's just red food coloring in those steaks. So that that's all bad. I would just avoid uh, healthy whole foods entirely. Um, and you know, we could all start eating carpet if if if, <laughs> if Lucky Charms are the uh, the pinnacle of the food. Like they admittedly they weren't at the top, but they were above steak. <laughs> oh, oh, well, you know, I've really been craving a uh, a burger that was made from um, impossible ingredients recently or you know really grown in a lab i mean 
uh, nothing really stirs up my digestive fire like uh, eating eating meat that's grown in a lab. I don't know about you, but I think that's yeah. the future. You know, forget all yeah. these actual animals that roam around and eat grass. Let's uh, let's eat some yeah. stuff that was grown in a lab. It's going to save the world for sure. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's going to be interesting to see where that all goes. But at the moment, it's well, the rates are, the rates in your country and my country of diabetes and all sorts of um nasty side on the flow on side effects of 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 our poor dietary practices, they're getting pretty serious, man. I think there's, I think we're slightly above you in terms of the BMI median now. I think Australians on average are slightly fatter than Americans now, so we've overtaken wow. you guys. Um, but I wow. think the data is a bit skewed. I think you guys have more morbidly obese, like crazily big people that can barely walk. We've just got a lot of people that are just just a bit heavy, you know, and it skews the data that way. Um, wow. But yeah, yeah, but it's 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 pretty bad. Australia is. If we're not in front of America, we're not far behind. Um, that's for sure. Yeah. Sorry, rest of the world. I know we gave you Starbucks and McDonald's, and now you're we're all paying the price for it. All of us, not not just the obese people, but I'm paying um, for it with my my tax return, mate. The, uh, we all are. we all are, yeah. yeah and environmental yeah. consequences yeah. of a company the size of McDonald's, I'm sure you know. For it sure. like yeah. there's this rule that I have, um, and it's hard to find things that break it, but basically. You take anything, it doesn't matter if we're talking about bikes or shoes or saddles or food or clothing. If you scale it to a big enough level, it starts to become a piece of shit. It just, <laughs> there's no way, there's no way to do, to scale something that big without making it really crappy, either for the people and to reduce the level of the product, the health of the product or the health of the environment or the the level of service you provide doesn't you talk about coaching it's the same problem it's the same problem everywhere you keep scaling stuff and eventually it just gets washed over with this coating of beige that makes it crappy <laughs> um, it gets un unwieldy yeah yeah unwieldy. i mean one example i can think of that maybe kind of breaks that rule is a company like patagonia right hmm. like they yep. do a lot to offset their all their big business practices and and he's uh the guy who owns it i don't know his name actually but he's done a lot of philanthropic it's pat pat um pat, and his, pat. his surname's agonia and pat agonia so anyway <laughs> <laughs> so okay we can think of a few examples that maybe where people are moving the dial in the right way but uh not to be i don't want to be all uh, doom scrolling on our podcast but yeah mm. yeah yeah yeah, I think that's a fair call, actually. Yeah, yeah. You scale anything big enough, and it usually goes goes to hell. I would say that's probably fairly accurate. It's it's a challenge. It's a big challenge, right? Mate, I don't think I don't think you and I are going to have that problem in the bike fitting world, where we're <laughs> one man bands. You know, I, I had a client a uh, couple of weeks ago. We, I, he contacted me. He said, oh, "I've got to see you as, as urgently as I can. I'm about to go off to the worlds in Scotland, and I've got this problem with my knee, which has come up, and it's it's really urgent." And um, I said, look, mate, I'm, I'm booked out for nine weeks, you know, I, yeah. unless someone cancels and I can squeeze you in somewhere, this is going to be a struggle. And mm -hmm. we were going back and forth, you know, ruminating on on how, how am I going to clone myself? Because he said, you've got to hire someone. And I said, who the hell's got the same skill set as me that I would hire? And right. and if they had the same skill set, why would it, why would they work for me? You know, it's yes. it, it, you yep. you can't do anything. You just all you can do is is try and you know slowly charge more money to kind of bring your lead time down a little bit. And but I mm. I 
I'm, I'm, I'm not very expensive relative to some of my peers in Australia. I tend to try and keep my costs down so that I'm not excluding a whole bunch of, you know, whole categories of people who just can't afford to come and see me. So yep. consequently, my, my booking lead time is a bit, a bit out of control sometimes. And it's, it's a real problem, but I've got, I've got no great solution for it except to to just keep doing what I'm doing and work as many hours as I can tolerate. And, you know, it's a tremendously fatiguing job, as you would know, because you're basically dealing with complicated three-dimensional jigsaw puzzles day after day after day. And the the, yeah. the neurological demand is really it's very tiring and you you wouldn't you wouldn't think it would be very tiring. Um, but it really, you know, I can do about probably 25 to 30 hours of fitting a week and that's kind of my limit i just get blown up after that i just yeah Yeah. i can't think you know and um people say you know i say it's it's like doing rubik's cubes over and over and over and over because it's a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle and every single person's different and yeah it's it's a very fatiguing thing so i'm i'm sort of destined to always be probably a one-man band which is great for you know the simplicity of the whole thing i don't have to worry about employees anymore or any of this kind of stuff it, the buck stops with me if something you know if something goes yep. wrong or i stuff up it's it's my fault it's never anyone else's fault so um it's kind of good and bad in, in that regard it's nice being it's nice having it really simple but yeah, gee, I wish I could scale this business somehow. <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. Uh, yeah, I've, I've joked in the past between my my coaching, which is also one on one, and my fitting, I've yes. scaled the mar- uh, cornered the market on non scalable services. <laughs> <is> my TM, <laughs> and and I agree 100. There's a beautiful simplicity in that because you're 100 responsible for everything. But on the other hand, you also do everything, and that's that's a double edged sword, right? But it's enormously rewarding work. I mean, when you get an email from someone who says, I was on the verge of quitting the sport and now I can ride my bike again, there's no reward. There's no other profession that I can think of that comes close to that. I'm sure there is, you know, there are people doing brain surgery and stuff, but so I should never play it. But on the other hand, there's so many people, how many clients come to you and they're like, look, man, cycling is my peacetime. It's my escape. It's basically a modern meditation practice for a lot of people. And when they can't ride their bikes, they're, they really can have challenges. And, and I love to ride the bike. I mean, I've learned the hard way to uh, make myself to, I'll say, uh, train myself to have more tools in the shed so that if I can't ride a bike, I can go for a hike or a run, or I can do uh, 30 minutes of kettlebells or meditate or do Qigong or Tai Chi. And these are alternate ways for me to move my body and find that type of peace. And I recommend that for anyone who's it's just like anything. If you're hyper dependent on, you know, yeah. riding a bike or coffee or, you know, pasta or um, Netflix or cocaine, any of these things will cause you problems, some more quickly than others. But anytime you're really dependent on one thing, you're asking for a lesson from life because eventually yeah. that thing will be taken away from you. It's yeah. just the way life works. Right. So, OK, there's my speech on how not to become too dependent on cycling for everyone. Yeah. But but. I also, you know, when someone does love the bike and I can appreciate it too, I want to give them that gift. And I know it can help people be healthier. And and as many ways as cycling screws up human bodies, it also offers a lot of health and a lot of freedom and a lot of connection with nature and connection with self. So to be able to offer that to someone when they've been struggling with it is a, it's a powerful gift to give someone. So I just keep trying to offer it as many times as I can, but I have the same problem you do. I'm booked out, you know, 10, 12 weeks in advance. And I get people email me. They're like, 
uh, I went to your appointment. There's no appointments on your calendar, and, and I can't get in until October. You know, surely <laughs> it's broken. <laughs> no, it's not broken, man. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. This yeah. is it. I'm, I'm tapped. <laughs> I, I got to. Uh, for me, I found that I have to very intentionally and cautiously manage those boundaries. I have to be a bit rigid about those because uh, if I'm not, the risk is that I start to lose my own se- sense of self. And then you begin to get a little burned out. And then as soon as that happens, they get that little um, thread of resentment that creeps in. And that's poison, right? That emotion is, uh, you know, the same, like feelings buried alive, never die. So you can't <laughs> walk through the world resenting your clients. That's no way to be an authentic fitter, right? You're not going to help people that way. That's going to come around somehow is my, yeah. uh, my experience. I've experienced that. And I try really hard to manage that. Yeah. 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 I have all the same, all the same problems. I've, I tend to, it, it takes a lot to really tick me off to, to kind of, to, to kind of move yourself into a zone of, 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 uh, of my opinion where, where I really think, oh God, not this guy again. Jeez, can he just leave me alone? It takes a lot to get me to that stage. I'm, I'm usually really, uh, accommodating and, and easy going but um there's there's still the odd one that works their way under your skin like that <laughs> it's always yeah. going to be the way it's always yeah. going to be the way <laughs> yeah. we're so dealing with it oh go ahead go ahead i was gonna say we're, we're dealing with every cross section of humanity there is you're always gonna have some people like that <laughs> sure absolutely you put 100 people in the room you'll find one that you disagree with almost immediately right it's just human nature yeah. Um, it's like physics almost, you know, you'll, you'll eventually find that molecule you bump into, but yes. (laughs) Yeah. When I have that moment of, of like, Oh, this is starting to get under my skin a little bit. I feel that reactivity rise up in me. It's I, now I've learned to to witness that and be like, okay, what is it about this? That's really challenging me. Like, do I, do I have a story in my head that I have to go for a three hour ride today? Cause I don't do that that often. Or is it that I feel that this client should have learned this lesson already? So then I have to ask myself, well, okay, then I obviously they're either, either they're not learning it because they're not ready to hear it, or I haven't taught it well enough. Mm. So let's try a different way. It's like, yeah. Okay. Let me explain to you again, why hydration is so critical for you. And (laughs) I'm not going to fix this global inflammation problem by raising your saddle and moving your cleats. Right. (laughs) I know that you're dehydrated. I can feel it in your tissues. I can see it in your mobility. You know, we've had conversations about this. So how do I reapproach this lesson? Because this is what I'm getting as the biggest thing, the gift I can offer you, right? Or as um, Helen Hall says on her podcast, you just simply offer your clients the gift of notice, right? Isn't that a cool term? I love that. Like, mm. this is what I see. And you just hand it to them on a plate. I noticed yeah, this. Yeah. And you watch how they ingest that or process mm. it. It's like, huh. Oh. Okay, cool. Sometimes they don't even they don't even see what you see. Yeah, <laughs> take something absolutely. different away, which is fine, yeah. right? But yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah. Humanity, mate. You, you can't you can't kill them all. You can't live with them all. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely they not. Just they just are, and we just are too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Um, Neil, I will, uh, thank you so much for making time and uh, getting up early to come meet with me and record a pod uh we just i didn't even introduce you we just uh we just started going so right. now that we're at the end maybe you can just tell people 
Um, maybe give them a brief overview of your credentials, all the letters you got behind your name, and then where people can find out more about you. And you're amazing. You're a YouTube star, so probably everyone on my channel knows you. But just in case, let's make sure they do know where to find you. Yeah, yeah mate. I had, I had someone uh, pull me up in a ride the other day. It's, oh, you, you're that guy from YouTube. You know, yeah, it's, oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's me. Yeah, um, no, that was that was simultaneously the best and worst thing I've ever done was go on uh, on Cam's YouTube channel because it, it was it's great fun and it's it's easy to do. But gee, the um the the booking lead time suddenly you've got a a, a capture like a what's the word you've got like a, a demographic of people which is now global who are trying to seek yep. your services out instead of just being around in the little area where you where you live because of the, the global reach of, of youtube and the internet so it's been yep. great and simultaneously uh problematic at the same time but look yeah i'm a so i, I guess you can you might be able to tell from the way I talk about cycling biomechanics but I'm a sports physio by trade and my so here in Australia we call it we call ourselves physiotherapists but I think you guys over there call yourselves physical therapists but ours is basically a four-year sort of full-time degree and we we basically learn to treat a whole bunch of stuff but the main stuff that I was interested in was sports injuries and biomechanics and that sort of stuff and after that I got really interested in running biomechanics and um, then I jumped on a bike, a, a, a very good friend of mine um, who, who lives down in Melbourne by the name of Dean, he rocked up at my uh, cl clinic one day on a beautiful Time RXS and uh, from like 06, 07. And I, I was like, that bike looks fantastic. I've got to get into this sport. And so I got, I got deeply into the sport there and and I got really interested in the biomechanics side of things because of major major problems that I was having with my position, which none of the mm. bike fitters uh, that I saw could could do anything about. So I thought, well, I'm I'm going to have to fix this myself, and that's that's kind of how I got into this. And I think what are we 14 years odd later now? I'm now just doing this full time, not you know not because uh not, not for any great monetary reasons because <laughs> there's not a lot of money yet, but there's yeah. um it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun and it's it's really you get to be around the sport and talk the sport with with your clients all the time which is fantastic um mm -hmm. and it's it yeah it's a very addictive sport this one very addictive but so i'm i'm technically still a physiotherapist but i just deal in cycling biomechanics and i i sort of deal with everything from um injury mechanisms right up right like all the way through to the other end so someone comes in and i can look at them and assess them and go oh mate i, I think you've got a, a symptomatic labrum tear here look we're going to fix your position but if this pain doesn't go away here's a referral for an mri you know let's yep. and then i'll liaise with the sports doctor and they'll liaise with the surgeon and talk about getting it fixed <coughs> and we you know so i'm kind of a one-stop sort of injury management prevention shop if you if you like i can approach these things from a from a biomechanical standpoint but also a, a pathological you know injury process standpoint as well and that's that's been really helpful for me but i don't mm. think that's um i don't think that's a critical thing to have in a bike fitter um some of the best bike fitters i've ever met ever have no formal qualifications of any type like mm -hmm. steve you know he's never been to university but <laughs> you know he's got to be up there with the best in the world so um and then yep. i've met people i've met people with the same qualification as me who are absolutely terrible at this for some reason their brain doesn't work in the in the required dimensions or whatever i think you've got to have a very yeah. specific type of brain to do this well and i think your brain needs to work well in three dimensions which not everyone can so yeah, yeah. but um the youtube stuff cam cam nichols he came into my 
clinic for a bike fit ages ago and he said oh do you mind if i film it and i said what for and he goes oh, i've got this little youtube channel um and i said oh why not you know a bit of free exposure and it just yep. kind of snowballed snowballed from there and he um he got me to do a couple of videos on his channel years ago about like seat height which is always what everyone wants to know about and we're up to i think he's up to like nine hundred and fifty thousand views or something on that on that video and um yeah that's been really interesting some of the some of the contacts you get from over overseas guys in lithuania and france and portugal emailing you hey hey can you help me with this i need help with that i i, I can't find anyone local to do this and Yep. You know, it, it's been it's been really interesting. Um, although it has filled up my email inbox quite significantly uh, in ways that aren't particularly profitable, because I, I do try and sit there and answer them if I can. Um, right. But yeah, the YouTube stuff's been really really fun, and like Cam does all the work. I, I literally just talk <laughs> for ten minutes, and he edits it and does all the hard stuff. But um, it's certainly been a fun a fun process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have a similar experience with my podcast. I get people email me from wherever and yeah or messaging me on instagram which is even more um interesting and that, you gotta that's get, an you gotta get rid to... of that instagram man you don't <laughs> need that in your life <laughs> i don't even have a i don't even have a facebook page for my business yeah little like instagram either. you know i don't either too much too much instagram it's just now i've got it going and it's where i publish the podcast and let people know they're up and uh, it, I don't, yeah. but I don't really, to be honest, I don't monitor it that often. Those of you who are listening, I, I do have people contact me there and occasionally I'll give them little nuggets and whatever, but it's an opportunity for boundaries again, because sometimes people will message you and be like, Hey, I'm sending you this video of me riding in a group ride, you know, going around a corner. Like, what do you think of my saddle height? Like, uh, I charge money for this. I'm sorry. But, uh, and you're asking me to do things that are, yeah, I'm sure we all have. So that's okay. You know, like on an iphone <laughs> right right yeah some random person filming you on an iphone and you want to know if are your cleat offset is it okay or whatever <laughs> yes. look me i don't know i yeah you're gonna have to uh, book an appointment for that and and i do offer yeah, some visual uh virtual fitting services from time to time and i always give people the disclaimer like look there's only so much we can do here this is really nuts they and bolts work. yeah they don't work it, well, it's I, it's not my favorite modality, but I realize some people, they really just need to know, like, am I even in the right universe of fit? And we can tell them that from a, you know, I can say, you can spot a lot of asymmetries and say, look, here's what I see. You know, I can't tell you the reason, but have you ever been told you had a leg on discrepancy? You can start to cleave out some things and give them some direction to go, possibly. The risk there is that you give them just information to get lost, but it's a nightmare. Yeah, I, I get, I get yeah. that question two or three times every week you know if i take yeah. some footage of myself can you fit me from from portugal and i'm like uh nah man the the the, yeah. the outcome is so bad it's embarrassing like i've had i've had people where i've uh they were coming from interstate to see me and i've said look just send me some footage of yourself let me see how bad your position is and i've gone okay lower the seat five mil and move it forward four and, and then come and see me in two weeks and we'll fix the rest of it and i looked at them in person and i've seen something totally different to what i saw in the mm. video that just mm. you know so that it just doesn't come across well on video at all you know i've given mm. up trying to do mm. that well that's interesting and i noticed in a couple of your videos i've watched uh of you on your on your channel that you've said i don't know if this is going to show up in the video and even there are moments where i film people with the ipad and i can see stuff very clearly and even in the ipad looking at it afterwards in slow-mo it's you You're just like, can't really capture it. There are things that are missing yeah. on video. 
Uh, it just doesn't work. Yeah. It just doesn't yeah. work. And that's in person looking at the iPad together with our naked eye, let alone <laughs> yeah. someone's emailing you the video or putting dropping it at a Google Docs or whatever it is. Yeah. So, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I wish yeah. I could do virtual fittings, mate. Uh, but, um, yeah, the the outcome is just so bad. I just uh, mm. I, I really caution people against trying to do it. Yeah. It's, it's a, not a great idea generally. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, cool, man. Um, so now you're you're booked out uh, eight, nine, ten, twelve weeks. But let's uh, let's make sure we get you more people going your way. Uh, tell people where you're based so they know. Oh uh, yeah, so I'm I'm in southeast Queensland, uh, in in on the eastern coast of Australia. So I'm um, I'm in a place called the Sunshine Coast, which is exactly what its name suggests. It's a beautiful part of the world. Um, great place for a holiday if you if you're coming from overseas. I do have quite a lot of clients from. Uh, well, every every country you can think of, actually, but um, a lot of them coming across for holidays or round the world trips or coming over for the tour down under, particularly in, in January every mm-hmm. year. Um, but yeah, Queensland, great place to visit, mate. And there's uh, we can sort your bike position out while we're here. Give myself Perfect. a plug. <laughs> yeah, do it. And um, remind people what the address for your website is, please. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's just Neil's Bike Fit. I, I should have come up with a better name 14 years ago, but that was all I could think of, mate. So, uh, and my name's got um, two L's in it. Any, it's N E I double L um, for some some reason. So it's just neilsbikefit.com.au. Perfect. All right. And anything else you want to share with readers? You don't have an Instagram, don't have Facebook, any other way. No. You get a hold of you, just on the website yeah. and your YouTube channel. Uh, it's Cam's YouTube channel, right? Don't contact me at all. I don't want to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> Never, ever, ever contact. Um, it's no, Cam Nichols, right? Yeah, and he, but you have some other videos on other channels as well. Yeah, so he it's, it's quite a funny. He's got a, like a personal channel, which is his big one. And then there's this other one called the RCA Training Tips channel, which yes. is his business that he runs. And that's the main one that I go on every now and again and waffle on about okay. something for 10 minutes. Yeah. But um, there's a whole playlist there of, of the bike fitting videos and you can, you can garner a lot of good information out of them. If you, if you determined to sit through them and listen to them all there, um, there's some pretty good nuggets of wisdom in there, I reckon. Cool. I, you got to love that. I mean, <laughs> through the internet, the pile of, of rubbish that's out there and then figuring out what's actually worth watching is a ongoing challenge for everyone, but there's a lot of expertise to be gleaned if you know to look in the right places. Right. So it's a big pile, mate. It's a big pile. (laughs) It's a very big pile. I've had a lot of people come to me and they've said, I found you through, I found Neil Stanbury's channel on, or his videos on YouTube. And then I eventually, then he did the, the coefficient one, you mentioned the bar somewhere and then you mentioned me and a lot of people have found me through that actually. So thank you. Really? Wow. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I've had at least half a dozen people come to me recently with that. Like, oh, I saw these bars on Neil's channel. So that's hilarious. Oh my I mean, god. Yeah. You get forty thousand views or ninety thousand views on a video, you know, you figure six yeah. people actually isn't that many. So for um, sure. Well, keep throwing some work your way, mate. You just hook me up with one you. of those new lab seventy ones and uh we'll be even. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Yeah, put, put a good word in for uh, with, with John Borders for me for that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, nice to meet you in person, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you so much for making time. Appreciate it. Not a problem. And um, we'll, uh, I'll be sure and notify you when uh, all this goes up. And I will put this on my YouTube channel. That's Cycling in Alignment. And uh, I'll send you a note there at that point, too. And you can sure. 
I would, have, I would have had a, a slightly better background if I'd known we were going on YouTube, but this is what you get. <laughs> perfectly, perfectly suitable. <laughs> suitable. The camp chair and the side of the car. Yeah. And the camp chair the S&P in the bar, so it's all good. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse, as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.